Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can run for your group. As you know by now, we're building this season for the Fallout role-playing game, and if you're looking for a copy of those rules, drop by your local book or game shop, or check out the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Before we get into this week's build, I wanted to respond to a couple of questions I got DM'd over the past week concerning my group and how we handled the distractions and such that I discussed in a previous episode. Most of the folks sending questions noted that we got a lot more done in a short amount of time in our last session, and those listeners wanted to know how we managed it. So let me take a minute here to lay out what we did. And I'll note up front that what we did might not necessarily work for every group, but hey, if you want to try it, please be my guest. Now, most of these ideas are not original ideas. We've cribbed stuff from other groups we've played in over the years, and We've sprinkled our own little twists in. And there are a couple of things I need to point out before I get into the changes. And that's really just to set it up so you know what we're working with. The first thing is that we've got a big group. Counting myself, there are nine of us on game night. And we range in age from almost 50. That's me, Jim, and Scott. And we go all the way to Braden. He's in his early teens. Jim and Scott and I have been friends for 35 plus years. Jim and Scott have been friends even longer than that. A lot of history between the three of us. And other than Clayton and Tyler, we've raised everybody else in the group since they were babies. So again, a ton of history. And that history leads to storytelling because we all seem to have the same sense of humor. So when one of us thinks there's something funny to say outside of the game, somebody blurts it out. That leads to somebody else saying something. Next thing you know, we've been off the game for an hour. The second thing I need to note is our seating arrangement. With a group this large, sitting at Scott's kitchen table is impossible. And even their dining room table technically wouldn't support nine of us along with character sheets, dice, and any of the props we're using. So when the group was a bit smaller, we made the decision to sit in Scott's living room to run the game. When we only had seven of us in there, it worked pretty well. Scott sits in his favorite chair. Jim usually takes the love seat for himself because really, it's a small love seat. Just trust me on that. We get a couple of players sitting on the couch and we bring in a couple of chairs for whoever is left as well as myself because I set up in front of the TV and work off of a folding table that Jim bought when he was running the game a couple of years ago. Now with nine of us, the living room's just not quite big enough. So we have two players sitting at the kitchen table and that works because the living room and kitchen are open floor plan so they can easily see and hear us. However, it's also dangerously distracting as Scott's other two kids or his wife or Jim's daughter or my daughter and grandson might also be sitting at that table to eat or just hang out for a bit. And you can see where that might interfere with the game. So here's what we decided to do to try to eliminate some of those distractions in order to maximize our game time since we don't get started until 9 p.m. most nights and we tend to wrap around 1 a.m. because people have Sunday morning obligations. The first thing we addressed was out-of-character comments. And this one came from a policy that Jim, Scott, and I used in an earlier version of this group. When someone needs to make a comment out-of-character during a time that everyone else is in-character, they use something we borrowed from LARP players, which is that they raise a hand with the index and middle fingers crossed. It's done in LARPs because 
Well, you're expected to stay in character the entire time. And since LARP groups can have several dozen people going at once, it's very important for everyone to know what is and isn't in character. Doing the raised arm and crossed fingers move, and actually it's supposed to be over the top of your head. But anyway, it makes it abundantly clear to everyone in the room that the comments coming next are not in character so people can react accordingly. The next thing we addressed was getting snacks, drinks, and making bathroom stops. Now, previously, folks pretty much just got up whenever they wanted to go get stuff or they stopped the game to hit the head. What we've implemented is a break every 45 minutes to an hour during which everybody goes to the bathroom, everybody gets snacks, and obviously if you need a drink, get one. Now, of course, if you've really gotta go, we can break at that point and then everybody does what they need to do and then we just restart the timer when we're done. This really worked well last session, so this part of the equation is already paying off. The final thing we addressed are the two players sitting at the table in the kitchen. Tyler's been there since the Deadlands game, and he prefers it because it gives him more room. Aniston was with him last game, and he may stay there for a while, especially since I really wanted to move him away from his brother, but he decided to do it on his own, so I didn't have to. Needless to say, having the brothers sitting next to each other was a distraction all of its own. For those two at the table, their responsibilities are a bit more. They have to try to find a way to block out whatever distractions may be going on around them and focus on what we're doing. Now, the last session was a bit of an anomaly because we had a guest with us and there was a lot of extra conversation going on. Jim and I both suggested a couple times during the session that Aniston or Tyler get closer to the group for a moment or two so they could better hear and understand what was being said, and they both responded well to our requests. And honestly, that's it. That's all we did. Like I said, everything seemed to work pretty well last session, even though we only got about two hours of gaming in before factors beyond any of our control caused us to cut the game short for the night. We shall see how it goes for our next session, which for those of you listening on Friday when this episode drops, is tomorrow night. So with that covered, let's recap what we built last week. Our group headed for the ruins of St. Louis University to follow a tip from Victor concerning one Darren Olchestny. Either by stealth or by sheer strength of numbers, they found Darren and a few friends in an area that had been cleared out to make a semi-secure shelter. Unexpectedly, Darren was willing to speak with them, and he noted that while he did work the one job with the crew who supposedly kidnapped Corinth and Igmon, he personally was not involved in it. After some discussion, Darren named Marcus as the person the group might want to speak with, as he was the one who recruited Darren for the job, since he's the second in command of that crew. He gave the group the name Rotgut Row, which is a tavern a few blocks north of where they are at the moment. Heading into the bar, Marcus saw the group well before they saw him. He approached, and if the roles were right, he offered up a bit of information about their missing benefactors. He was reluctant to do so, but he eventually offered up Garson Tactical as the group ultimately responsible for the kidnapping. He also advised the group to not mess with him, but you and I both know that ain't gonna happen. Again, if the roles were right, he gave the group the location the men were being held in, and it's the old Barnes Hospital, which, if you'll remember, is the last location they need to check on, on their Jessup Chemicals list. Now, if the group fought Marcus and killed him, they basically got the same information from the bartender, who really just wanted the group to leave him some stuff to pay for the damages done to the bar, then adios. 
We ended the build with the group discussing their options and working on a plan of action. Now, if we're being honest, there aren't really a lot of options to discuss here. We both know the group's headed for Barnes. The only question is whether or not they want to try to see if Jackson Denman is there first, try to infiltrate the Jessup Chemicals portion of the facility, rescue Corinth and Igmon, or do either two of them or all three at the same time. I can safely tell you this. My group is probably going to try to do all three at once. I I just know them. They're not going to make two trips if they think they can get everything done in one. So let's get them to the hospital. It'll be about a 20, 25 minute walk from the bar if they're headed straight there. We're not going to put an encounter in here because there will be more than enough for them once we get into it. We do, however, want to lay out what the devastation to this part of the city looks like because while hospitals are usually off limits in conflict, that wasn't the case when the nukes dropped. And before we can detail the damage, we need to lay out what the area looks like now and discuss what it would have looked like with a 1950s neo-futuristic style. In our time, Barnes Jewish Hospital takes up several city blocks worth of real estate. Its westernmost buildings would be right on the edge of Forest Park were it not for a very busy street running past it. It runs a bit to the north, but that's primarily because the old Jewish hospital sat on that side of the street. And when Barnes and Jewish officially joined up to become one hospital, they just made a few changes. North to south, the hospital runs like five, six blocks, with Interstate 40 being the southern border. It's running to the east that the largest amount of real estate is used. It's not so much about city blocks because there aren't a lot of streets running through the complex. If I had to venture a guess, though, I'd say it's somewhere between 8 and 10 or as much as 12 blocks, if not more. It is huge. If you're curious, by the way, to see just how huge it is, you can Google images of the hospital. And I found the acreage of the property someplace, but I don't remember what that site was. And frankly, I didn't write that acreage down. So that's on me. But we need to note that in the 1950s, the hospital was much smaller. And since Barnes and Jewish were both acting as separate hospitals, though they both worked with Washington University, it wasn't the mega complex it is today. So in the interest of getting on with this build, we're going to say Barnes in our game takes up a couple, three, four blocks and that the buildings were about three to seven stories high, depending on the building. I say were because after all the destruction, there will be several of the buildings down to about a story, maybe a story and a half. There is one four-story building. That's going to probably be the one we spend our time in, but we'll see as we go. Of course, this doesn't count basement space. But we'll lay out what we need as we need it. So with that barn situation basically laid out, let's set the scene as the group heads for the hospital. They'll be making their way west down Forest Park Avenue, past the blocks of mostly destroyed homes and businesses. When they come across the hospital, they immediately notice that while Barnes took a lot of major damage, it at least survived, in a manner of speaking. There are no longer any signs of Jewish hospital. Now, we're going to give them the obvious as they approach, because by this point, they probably have their heads on a swivel when they approach any building. There are four sets of entrances to the ground floor, not counting the old emergency room, which has its own entrance facing King's Highway, which is the road running north to south on the west side of the building. Each entrance has four armed guards on it. We're going to use the stats for a Knight of the Brotherhood of Steel, which are on page 383. However, these are not members of the Brotherhood. 
From a distance, i.e. across the street from the hospital, it will take a check to find the rest of the armaments that are on or outside of the building. We have been using endurance plus survival for these types of checks, so let's keep with what we've done. Now, we're going to use a sliding difficulty on this because certain levels will give certain amounts of information. And obviously, the higher difficulties get the information from the lower ones. Difficulty two, they realize there are five pairs of Protectron robots patrolling the perimeter of the building. They're fairly well spaced out, but when you have those in addition to the armed guards, you've got a lot of hardware in one place. Stats for those are on page 363. Difficulty level three, they notice there are four machine gun turrets on the top of the building on each wall, north, south, east, west. Stats for those are on page 377. Difficulty four, they notice a smallish hole on the east wall of the hospital. It might be small enough to squeeze somebody in, but they're going to have to get close enough to figure it out. And difficulty five, there are two wall mount machine gun turrets to the side of each of the sets of guards. Stats for those are on page 379. Okay, so we're setting up a ton of firepower for our group to go up against. I just need to take a moment to assure you I'm not looking to kill the group. Truth be told, I don't even want to kill any group member. The goal here is to challenge the group to come up with a solution that's more technical and sneaky instead of all brute force and firepower. Now, that being said, if your group wants to shoot it out with the guards, there will be some rubble to the east, west, and south of the hospital that they can use for cover. But at that point, they'll be at medium to long range. So unless they've got rifles, they're going to have some issues hitting anything. And as always, if you're that concerned about killing off group members, drop some of the stuff I put in there. I can assure you when my group hears all this stuff being listed out, they're going to feel like I am setting them up for failure. I'm going to explain it the same way I explained it here. Then I'm going to challenge them to find a solution to my problem. Two more things here. Then we continue the build. One, if nobody gets one of the higher difficulties on their role, they won't get the information that's there. And in the case of the hole in the wall, that would be a bad thing. So if you have a miss on that, Figure out who has the best combination of endurance and survival and suggest they either burn an action point or a luck point to roll again. If you want to allow this for everybody, that's your call, but I'm going to allow one group member in my group to try it with another assisting. We really need them to get that one, but I put it higher on the difficulty scale because with all the armament around, it would be easy to miss. Two, if they decide they need some help, this is where any of your characters with a special connection in their background get the chance to shine. Their connection is set up a few blocks north of the hospital in a small office they basically built out of reclaimed concrete and lumber, and they sell favors. That person just happens to owe your character a favor, and they'll be willing to lend the group two weapons from the following off the big guns chart on page 106. Flamer, Gatling laser, and minigun. He'll also supply them with enough ammo to take out a small army, but he'll expect any unused ammo to be returned with the guns. And if they use all the ammo, he's going to expect a little payment. I'll let you figure out how you want to do that. He also forces the character in question to swear on his life that they will return the guns. That should convince the group to return them when they finished. We're going to flesh this out a little bit later on, but probably not until next week. That's okay. Don't, don't worry about it. 
So if your group has decided they want to go full frontal assault with the weaponry they've picked up, they most certainly can do so. However, I'd note that gunfire will draw the attention of all the Protectrons, so a pair of them will be in the first round. Another pair will show up at the beginning of each round until all of them are in the fight. That means they're going to have to hit hard and hit fast. On the other hand, if your group is interested in trying the more stealthy approach, they won't have quite as much work to do. They will have to take out two of the roof turrets, but a few well-placed shots should do that. And so long as it isn't a prolonged fight, i.e. longer than about two or three rounds, other than four of the Protectrons, they won't pick up any additional bad guys to fight, as the hole they need is far enough away from the eastern entrance of the hospital that the guards won't be able to clearly make them out. It would appear from the way things are set up that whomever put all this in place clearly believes they've got enough firepower to discourage anybody from getting too close. So run this mini combat and hope they can finish things off in about two or three rounds. If by chance they get to a fourth round, two more Protectrons show up. If they get to a sixth round, the guards on the east entrance finally realize something hinky's going on and they'll join in. By then, things will break down. The rest of the Protectrons will join in as per our previous encounter layout. But we are going to be positive about this, as through the judicious use of action points and luck points, your group should be able to finish this off quickly, especially if they've got the big guns. So with everything taken out, they know they've only got about eh, two or three minutes before the next patrol of Protectrons comes by. And yes, I know the timing for Protectrons entering combat is much faster than that. I'd argue that if they know they're heading into combat, they can kick it into some higher gear and get there faster, unlike the video game where they move slower than I do. The thought on this is to send two members to the hole, one to check it out to see if not only it goes all the way through, but also to see if it's really big enough for all of them to get through. Needless to say, if they got a flamer, that last part's not really an issue since they can burn off some of the concrete to widen the hole. Now, I'll answer both questions with one sentence. It does go all the way through, but for robots or super mutants to get through, the hole is going to have to be widened by about an inch or so. Should only take a minute or so if you've got a flamer, so the pair checking might want to retreat and wait for the protectrons to pass before they do that task. If they don't have a flamer, robots in the party are going to have to try to find another way in mine have the ability to burn those themselves so it's not going to be quite as big a deal after all of that it's just about getting everybody into the hole within two minutes you can make the players roll if you want to but with what's coming up i say let's be nice to them and let them all get in without an issue i mean we can be nice to them it's not like we're rooting against them right I'll try to work up some floor plans for the hospital and I'll try to get Gabe to post them on the website. But listen, it's going to take me some time to get those floor plans done. So I wouldn't expect to see them before next week, maybe the week after. And that's not because it's Gabe's fault. When stuff gets posted late, 99.999% of the time, it's because I didn't get it done on time. So that is going to always be on me. Also, since there are two tasks the group is going to want to deal with, they're going to have to decide which task they're going to do first. Logically, they'd probably want to rescue Corinth and Igmon, since once their presence has been noted, those two might not have a lot of time left if they're even still alive. Now, between the two of us, they are, but the group needs to be wondering if they are or not, so just keep them guessing. We're only going to build out one of the options this week, as it's going to take a bit of time to work through it for the group, and we'll kick off next week's build with the other option. 
It also occurs to me that the group might have taken a decent amount of damage trying to get into the building. If it's so much that they can't treat it on site, they may need to fall back, get some rest, and possibly find a doctor to handle it for them. Falling back to Diamond Pass might be the better idea since it's secure and they can get the help they'd need. If that were to happen, they can head back out whenever they want to, but when they return, unless it's in two hours or less, they will notice that the security has been refreshed to the same numbers they dealt with in their first attempt. In that case, they will need a new strategy, and when they come up with that, you will need to come up with a way to handle it. All of that being said, I think your group is probably going to take advantage of the hole in the wall, so whatever damage they pick up should be able to be handled with stim packs and some makeshift bandaging. It's also possible that your group, or mine for that matter, might have decided to pull the full frontal assault. It's also highly possible they succeeded at it. All that's going to mean is that for this part of the mission, they'll be starting at a different part of the map than what I'm starting with here. I will lay that out once I go with the hole in the wall option. Let's start with the overall dimensions of the building itself. Look, I'm not even going to try to map that out because we're talking about thousands of square feet of exterior wall. And this is one of those things where I'd much rather build out the interiors we need rather than waste time trying to piece together enough graph paper to do the exteriors in anything even remotely resembling scale. Just think of the hospitals you've either been in or lived near. They're most likely pretty big. So think of that and understand that's about the size we're going with, if not larger, because I don't know what your local hospital looks like. Now, per most codes for hospitals, corridors are intended to be from six to eight feet wide. For our purposes, we'll round up to 10 because one graph square equaling five feet works best for our purposes. When the group enters the building through that hole in the wall, they'll notice they've got about 200 feet of straight corridor ahead of them. They'll also be able to make out the faint sound of boots from the end of that corridor. Now, you can handle this in one of two ways, and I'll leave it for you to decide. One, there's a patrol of one more than the total number of group members coming down the corridor at the other end, and as the group begins to make their way down, they are noticed and engaged. I'd only use this option if the group got in without much of a fuss or fight. Otherwise, let's go with option two. That patrol has already passed the junction and is headed north, which means they've got a bit of time before they turn around and head back down. Again, if the group screws around for too long or if they make a ton of noise, they may have to engage that patrol. However, we're tossing them a bone here, so they should be able to do what they need to do next without much of an issue. 40 feet down the corridor, the group notices a door on either side of them marked Basement Access. The paint is faded since it's been there since well before the bombs dropped, so the group should be confident that that does give them basement access. Now, why would the group want to go in the basement? First off, they know they need to get out of this corridor as quickly as possible and find a place they can quietly discuss their next move. And for the record, with my group, the quietly part is going to be the difficult part, but at least I can't say I didn't try to give them something. I'd also note that if you wanted to keep prisoners somewhere, you'd probably want to keep them in a basement since there are no windows or doors to the outside down there, so escape would be a lot harder. And for the record, that's the case. Corinth and Igmon are in the basement. The Jessup experiments are on the third floor and what remains of the fourth floor. Like I said, though, we'll get to Jessup next week. Both doors are locked, and the quiet way to do this would be a perception plus lockpick check difficulty two. 
These aren't the most sophisticated locks out there since they were designed mostly to keep curious patients and visitors out of the stairwells. And that should tell the group that Garson Tactical probably didn't think upgrading these locks was a priority. And that thought will probably get them to thinking about the nature of the security measures as they make their way downstairs. So if you've ever been in a hospital access stairwell, you know that for the most part, the stairs are about six feet wide and there tends to be 10 to 12 steps before a landing and then a turn to head further down. That's the case here. It should also be noted that the handrails for the stairs are all still in place, though the paint has chipped and faded. They also notice as they walk that the concrete these steps were formed from is starting to get a bit weak. It's still strong enough to handle people walking up and down them, but they will need to be repaired or replaced fairly soon. First floor to the basement is 24 steps, and there's another door here. This one has a more sophisticated locking system on it, and it appears to be run with a security terminal. It's also obvious the door has been replaced with a solid steel door, much like a security door for something you really want to keep people out of. Intelligence plus science checks difficulty three to hack the system and disable the locks, and they'll hear that heavy clang of the locks as they pull back. So the door is unlocked and it's ready to be opened. Once opened, they notice that the five foot doorway opens up into a 20 foot wide room slash corridor. It's dimly lit and the guess would be that they're using the emergency lighting down here since it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend a lot of power for something you don't use frequently. 10 feet down, there are doors on either side. They are unlocked and they appear to be storage from when this was a functioning hospital. Old beds, some tables, some chairs, you're kind of getting the picture. No meds or supplies in here, and unless one of them's got a junk gun, there's really nothing to note that they could take. After another 20 feet, there are two more doors, same setup as before. 10 more feet down, the passage turns to the left, and that space will narrow to 15 feet. This goes for another 40 feet with two more storage rooms about 20 feet down before they see the door at the end of the hall. This door also has a security lock on it, so the same rolls as for the last one, and this door makes it completely obvious that the two doors were brought in specifically for this purpose. So the door opens into a 60 foot by 60 foot room. The walls are lined with a whole bunch of old equipment. Again, gurneys, chairs, tables, IV poles, you name it, it's down here. There are boxes of old gauze and bandages, so if they want to stuff some of that into their pockets or bags, they're certainly welcome to do so. We'll note for the record, though, it's what's in the middle of the room that immediately draws their attention. Hanging back to back from a metal pole that runs from floor to ceiling are two men. It's hard to tell who they are because their faces have been beaten pretty badly, and between bruising, swelling, and blood, they're going to have to get closer to figure it out. They also note that the method used to hang them is metal chains run through metal hoops attached to a thick pipe in the ceiling. And to make matters worse, they appear to have jammed a decent sized metal hook through their hands to ensure they stay there. Neither man is bleeding at this point, and it appears all of their cuts have been treated pretty much appropriately. They just haven't been cleaned up or had the hooks removed. They are practically naked, wearing nothing but underwear and socks, and their torsos have been slashed, though just deep enough to appear to not have caused any major damage. They are still breathing, though it's obvious it takes them a lot of effort to do so. And when somebody gets close enough, they can barely make out the faces of Corinth and Igmon. 
If they attempt to speak to either man, they just don't have the energy to respond, though they will smile weakly and, and cry a bit. Intelligence plus medicine difficulty three to note that they've got some internal damage, some of that being the ribs that have definitely been broken, but otherwise it will take someone with surgical knowledge to figure the rest out. That role will also tell them that trying to remove the hooks will lead to enough loss of blood to kill them before they can be stitched up unless they're already in a surgical room having blood pumped into them. So this strategy has pretty much already been determined for them. They need to cut the hooks away from the chain and transport both men back to Diamond Pass so they could see whatever surgeon Victor can find for them. And there's no way we make this easy on them. Intelligence plus repair, difficulty five. And go ahead and announce this difficulty before anybody decides to roll so they can buy more D20s if they want to. The reason for that difficulty level is they have to cut the hooks loose from the chain without moving them a whole lot, since moving the hooks could lead to either man bleeding out. And I cannot stress this enough. They have to make this. Anything else will have dire consequences as they'll wind up tearing through Corinth and Igmon's hands and they'll wind up killing them since neither man has enough left to withstand that type of injury. But we are going to be confident that our groups will succeed, so let's get our prisoners out of there. Now, there's no question that the men will have to be carried out of there, so strength plus athletics difficulty two to get them hoisted and up the stairs. I'm sure somebody's going to think to check the hallway before they exit, but we're once again going to be nice here and not put them in a combat situation. They do need to remember to pass Corinth and Igmon through the hole, and that's going to be strength plus athletics difficulty one, with another one at difficulty one to get them hoisted back up and headed off. Now, this is the point where the carry weight of the characters really comes into play. Corinth and Igmon each come in at about 150 pounds, so that's the number we'll go with. So long as the character has that much weight available to carry something, they can carry a man back to Diamond Pass. They'll be moving a little bit slower, obviously, but they can do this without having to switch characters holding him. If they don't have that much available, or if only one of them does, then they're going to have to do the switch off, which means the strength plus athletics checks at difficulty one continue every time they make a switch, which for our purposes is going to be four times. And they're going to be moving at a pace just slightly faster than crawling, so it's going to take a lot longer to get back. That being said, we're not going to throw another encounter at him. If you're a bit of a sadist, feel free to do it if you want to. After all, we have used a number of different things to give encounters to the group throughout the city, so any one of those would be on the table. Just remember that the group would have to set the men down in order to fight, and it needs to be noted that there are two nearly unconscious men laying there, practically free targets. If this happens, run it like you want to, then continue on. Now, we will pause this part of the build here and go back to what happens if the group tried a full frontal assault and succeeded. Now, this is going to get ugly because they're going to have two encounters with patrols of one more than the number of people in the group, and they're all using those Brotherhood of Steel stats we used earlier. Oh, and for the record, if they check the uniforms when they finish some guys off, they have a patch on their shirt under the armor that reads, Garson Tactical. After the second encounter, they'll reach the hallway they need to reach to get to the basement, and either door will work. There's actually two separate basement spaces, but we're going to be nice and make either door the one they need. They'll also know where to head because there are names and arrows pointing in the directions they need to go. So if they follow the basement arrows, they'll get to the basement. 
Okay, so with both of our ways in covered, let's get to what happens when they get back to Diamond Pass. First off, security's gonna stop them at the gate. They're not gonna be ignorant about it or anything. They're just gonna want an explanation of why the group has two naked, bleeding men they're bringing into the pass. Now, so long as they leave Garson Tactical out of the conversation, they're gonna be allowed in without incident. Otherwise, a member of security will follow them to Victor's place to make sure things are on the up and up. Bruno again meets him at the door, though this time he doesn't take them back to Victor's office. Instead, he takes them to the room opposite it, where there are two surgical tables set up. He tells them to lay the men out on them, then he escorts them across the hall to Victor's office. Victor gets up from his desk when Bruno and the group enter. If the security guard is with them, Victor waves him off, saying, You need not worry yourself with these people. They are working for me, and I will vouch for them. Please return to your post. The guard's not going to look happy about that, but it's clear he's not going to go against Victor's wishes. After that, and if they don't have the guard with him, it's the very first thing Victor does. He addresses Bruno. Please head over to Marjorie's and have her bring the things that she needs to treat our friends. Let her know that it's urgent. Bruno gives an affirmative response, then speeds off to complete the task. Victor doesn't sit down. Instead, he heads across the hall to where Corinth and Igmon have been laid out, and he stares at them for several minutes. Doesn't take a roll for the group to notice that the longer he looks at them, the angrier he gets. However, he takes a moment and a couple of very deep breaths before he turns back to the group, wherever they are at the moment, and speaks with them. There's still a good amount of anger in his voice, but it's obvious that it's not being directed at the group. I will make Garson Tactical pay for what they have done. But that will take time to plan and resources to gather. So for the moment, I must continue to conduct my business as usual. He reaches into his shirt pocket and pulls out a data card. My sister was able to access a few records and dig up information about the issue we discussed earlier. She has a lead you can follow when you are ready. But I suspect you will probably head back to the hospital to complete that part of your task list. He doesn't really have much of anything else to say to him, but he does mumble something about them getting something to eat and drink on him. And that'll work out the same way it did the last time they did that, if they did that. They can order pretty much whatever they want and they're going to get served. After that, they can head off to resupply, get treated at the local clinic, and plan their next move. And if they want to hang out to watch the surgeon at work, Victor will politely request that they not, as the surgeon is very nervous about having people watch her work. Her and her robot will be the only ones allowed in there. I will not even be able to see them until she's finished. Go on with your tasks, and you can check back here when the next one is completed. So with all of this done, we've reached a really good spot to wrap our build for this week. Next week, we pick up with the other hospital option, which is to infiltrate the Jessup's Chemicals Project at the hospital. Until then, please check out our other show, Role-Playing History. This week, we explore the history of the Swedish game company, Target Games, and we take a look at three of their most popular games. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgingandproductions.net. And speaking of role-playing history, we're going to do an episode or two in the near future on the top 10 adventure modules of all time. If you're interested in getting your favorite one into the mix, you can hit us up on the socials and we'll see if your favorite makes the list. Oh, and it doesn't have to be D&D or Pathfinder. Any published game module for any system can be nominated and you can list as many as you want. If you want to know more, check out this week's episode because I get into more detail there. 
All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you'd like to check out all of the available Fallout materials or any of the other fine games and products produced by Modifius, head over to your local game shop or check out the website modiphius.net. The music we use on this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.com. Dot net. Next week, we head back to Barnes Hospital and we see just what kind of tomfoolery Jessup Chemicals is getting into. But that's going to be next week, folks. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.